Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest making his second appearance on The Verge. And specifically set up today to help us figure out relationships in this bizarre time and how that has totally changed the landscape of human relationships in this forced quarantine for so many parts of the country. And even if it's you're in a place right now that you've begun to move out and move around, you've now experienced at least 60 days of closed confines with the same people and it has brought people closer together or brought them further apart and to discuss all of these things is world famous relationship coach coach lee wilson lee how are you today buddy i'm great thanks for having me virgil well thanks for taking the time again to be able to come on because i just think you know obviously this podcast is about human performance it's about golf it's about wine it's about Music. It's about the things that make us connect to people and things. And the mental, mental wellness and emotional wellness is a major piece for me. As you're fielding an enormous amount of, you're, you're experiencing a large amount of need on your behalf from people wondering what's going on. What is it now that we're about 90 days into the quarantine of COVID-19? What are some of the most popular issues that you're seeing and how is it that you're attempting to help people out there that are struggling? Well, there's a lot of different stages a relationship can be in. And sometimes you are dealing with someone who's trying to get their ex back. Mm -hmm. And now on top of already a situation where for them, a lot of times it's a very tragic situation. It's almost the equivalent to someone dying. As a matter of fact, psychology studies have shown that a divorce 
is nearly as difficult to deal with emotionally and has physical effects on you similar to someone dying. So you have that, and then you have this extremely volatile, odd, scary situation that nobody can relate to that we're going through with fear of a virus, a pandemic, being quarantined for our safety and losing a lot of what we used to take for granted. Yeah. And then with some of the additional unrest with the racial uh, riots and the, the terrible situation there, it's like, how can this year get any worse? Murder hornets. <laughs> exactly. There's that, too. Yeah. It's, and what's funny is, is that normally that would be the, tra- the, the scary thing. You know, mm-hmm. what is going to happen? Because that could affect the food chain with what they do to the bees. But for us, it's just, well, that's a side issue at the moment. <laughs> and um, I, I saw some meme on Instagram and it said, I wake up every day, look outside, and think, what chapter of Revelation are we going to have today? <laughs> That's so true. And yeah. uh, it's, it's like a lot of the conversations I've had with my clients who are dealing with anxiety. If I had been talking to one of them six months ago, and they said, this pandemic is coming, and I know it, and we're going to be closing our houses, uh, and all these things are going to happen, their anxiety over the situation would probably be worse than what a lot of us are actually doing in terms of processing and dealing with it. Because it's funny how I mentioned that meme about the, you know, the book of Revelation and your reaction is like most people, you laugh about it. It's like we're in the middle of it and yet somehow we can still laugh about it. We can still take it one day at a time. We usually handle situations a lot better than we think we will. And that's one of the reasons anxiety is so misleading is that we almost completely discount our ability to be able to react or adapt to whatever happens. And so People, people are sitting with this person day after day, or they're sitting without this person day after day, and they're already in a bad situation. So the good thing has been that a lot of people who were separated or who were going through a lot of trouble have reported that they grew closer because they had to depend on this person. Because all of a sudden, this person is their rock. It's crazy when you turn the TV. It's crazy when you go outside. But this person... Is steady. This person, I can look back years ago and have memories with this person. And he or she seems to be so much more balanced, so much more, so much safer for me. Mm-hmm. And that's a great starting point to get some of those romantic feelings back. And so a survey that I, that I did on my website for my mailing list um, at myexbackcoach.com showed somewhere around the 31% mark. It's not a scientific survey, but it, it, it surveyed, uh, there were 750 or so responders. Mm-hmm. 31% said that the quarantine situation had hurt their relationship, which when we hear that number, that's not the majority. So we kind of think, oh, well, that's not bad. But that's still 31% of people who, in theory, would not have been hurt. Their relationship, their marriage would not have been hurt. Mm-hmm. But somewhere around in the, in the 40s, people said that it actually helped their relationship. And it was because they had this person to be their rock and they started depending on this person. And in some ways, this person became their sole source of human contact. And while there certainly is the potential for you to become tired of this person, you know, day after day, they start to get on on your nerves. A lot of people have been able to 
lean into that as far as I have this person day after day who's not changing. You know, this it's going crazy outside, and yet here he or she is. And day after day, even if they're not perfect people, they're solid ground. Mm-hmm. And not to get religious or anything, but the Bible talks about God, you know, over time with tragedy. Uh, there's a, a passage that even talks about, you know, though the ground crumble beneath me uh, and the floods come and all that. And there's a passage where God says, I'm God and I change not. And so there's something in the human element that craves that stability in something. And I think a lot of people are getting some of that from a, a spouse who maybe they were thinking, you know, I want to get rid of this sucker. Yeah. But now all of a sudden there, there's more value to this person. So it's affecting people differently. Some people it's hurting, but there does seem to be a lot of people who were considering divorce who I've spoken to. Yeah. One guy actually wanted to meet me at a golf course because he wanted to get away from her. They are actually doing a lot better now. Interesting. Because they could depend on each other. You know, it was like, calm me down, help me, tell me things will be better and we'll get through this. And they got better as far as their relationship goes because they had that in each other. And that's, that's really interesting because I, I just saw another, it probably isn't you know, as accurate as it just makes a point, is that 99% of what we worry about never really happens. It's like 1% of all the problems manifest themselves to reality. But yet our mind, to protect ourselves, we create all of these possible scenarios that we try to work through before they actually show up. And I'm not sure that we've ever had a worse start to a year when it would come to somebody who would struggle with anxiety. I don't think we could have a worse start to a year ever because of all the unknowns, how many things were forced changed. You're not going to work and you're fired. Not because I want to fire you because I can't afford to pay you. Sorry. I can't work. I got a house to pay for. What if I don't pay for it? What happened? You know, all of the things like it never ceases to end. Where am I going to get a job? How am I going to pay for my food? How am I going to pay for a car, house, everything? And it can be, but certainly overwhelming, but searching for the rock, so to speak, when you don't have anybody else, that's a, uh, that's a beautiful thing to fall into in what will be considered like a 2.0 version of a relationship as if it had been struggling. And that forced change enabled the best versions of yourselves to reconnect out of necessity to survive the moment. I would imagine that that's thirty-one percent is still a significant number of negative, and forty percent is a significant number of positive. And what's that leave? Nineteen percent left to not, or twenty-nine percent. Yeah, there was a percentage, and I don't have the numbers right in front of me, so I'm approximating, but where they basically said they, there wasn't a change. There wasn't a change, not yeah. noticeable change. But it was one woman who said, I went from not being able to stand the sound of his voice to waking up in the morning and thinking that that would be the highlight of my day when we, when we got to speak on the phone. And they, oh. were, they were in different homes. They were actually separated and planning a divorce. And now uh, she's moved back in, and uh, they're not considered separated. They're saying, I love you and all that stuff. And it was because... He became, she's the one who actually said, he's my rock now. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm, I'm getting that uh, as a point of reference. 
But yeah, she said, I couldn't, I, I went to where I couldn't stand the sound of his voice to that was the highlight of my day. Yeah. It's amazing. It is amazing. And it's, I'm always fascinated when you're, when you're dealing with, with clients is that where do you draw the line between something that seems to be savable and something that's not savable? Do you call that, is that where abuse kicks in, like physical and emotional and mental abuse? Is that where the problems, like you start to draw your line? Or where are your lines where you're like, this is something that we're not trying to save. We're trying to help you navigate and move past it to get a, a newer, a fresher start. Where do you draw your lines there on that? <clears throat> well, I really try to be case by case, but... A lot of times when the other person is demonstrating a repeated desire to be away from that person or when they're showing that the relationship in, is not important enough for them to fear their actions could harm it. In other words, they're basically taking this person and the relationship for granted in, in an extreme amount. Mm -hmm. That's where, you know, life is short. And I am all for giving people grace. And a lot of times, even when someone breaks up with someone and then they want to come back and the person is, I don't know if I should take them back. You know, I'll say, I'll say, look, have a little grace. If this person has really learned a lesson here, if they've learned that when they get out in the world without you, they don't like it. That's actually very valuable because mm -hmm. if, if you two have similar trouble in the future, this person knows, you know, that we may have this trouble, but I also know when I leave, or when I, I think that I want to break up with them, that I don't like it. That's a very, very valuable thing to have in a partner is that this awareness, this yeah. experience. Wow, that's powerful. And so I, I will tell a lot of people, it may feel like you've lost something you can't get back, but in reality, you probably gained something you couldn't duplicate any other way because this person has experienced life without you and realized they don't want that. And so it's not conceptual. It's not just something where they thought, man, if I could go out and be free, you know, which the Eagles said, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking this world all alone. And when you've actually had someone learn that about you, that their prison is walking without you, man, a lot of times those are the relationships that can get to that point of till death do us part. Yeah. And so as far as a point where I say, you know, you probably need to move on, it's when this other person seems to not learn that lesson because some people leave and they are happy and they just kind of dabble with the idea of you being in their life. You know, it's not coming back and let's work on this and I'm committed. I'll do whatever it takes mm -hmm. when that's not there. And they just treat this other person almost as they're just sort of a temporary little bit of enjoyment or they're on and off again to the extreme. Mm -hmm. Now some on and off again, eventually can work out very well because of what I just said, that they learn that they don't want to be without this person. But when there's lots of other people involved and this person does not learn that lesson, then it, it's probably not what they really want. Yeah. You know, it's not a lesson they can learn because it's, it's not their reality. That's when I usually tell people that there are other people out there. There's someone better out there for you. You can move on from this. It's just like any injury you will have days of pain, but you will get better. Yeah. And usually I have to remind people, you know, people forget they've actually gone through this before. They've been in breakups before. Sure. And they seem to be so 
hurt in the moment that they feel like they will never get over it. And so it's a matter of bringing them back to this one day at a time. You know, I don't have to get this person back today. Maybe I will next week. Maybe it'll be three months from now. But I don't have to get them back right away. Mm -hmm. And that puts them in the best position possible. Yeah. Maybe they will get this person back. Maybe they won't. But uh, that's usually if the other person doesn't learn the lesson, that's when I start bringing that into the, the, the situation. Let's take it one day at a time. Let's see what happens. You don't have to make anything happen right away. And if this person doesn't come back, you will be okay, which normally they don't want to hear that part. Mm -hmm. But I usually have to kind of put that in there. And I'll even tell them to say that out loud. And they're afraid to say it even. It's like they're afraid to speak it. But if they can start saying, if he, if she doesn't come back, I'll be okay. At first, it's just them saying it, forcing it, yeah. not believing it, faking it until they make it. But eventually, when you hear yourself say it, there can be some internalization, and it helps. Yeah, People really tell me that it helped me to vocalize that. And so um, that's kind of the world that I, I, I live in is that it doesn't always have to be a broad stroke in terms of, well, he's never coming back. We're never getting back together, so I'm going to try to move on. If they can take that approach, that's fine. But most of them are somewhere in the middle, and I just have to say, look, no matter what happens, it doesn't have to happen today for it to happen. Mm -hmm. You can still get this person back months from now. You don't, ha you don't have to put this urgency on it, which is a lot of the anxiety and the panic is they feel like they have to get them back right, right now, now or they'll lose them forever. And that is just almost never, never the case. Yeah. Usually getting them back actually takes time, and so you can't brush a cake being baked in the oven. That's right. That's so interesting. That's the third time in my podcast that people have talked about baking a cake, hmm. and you can't rush it. You can't turn, if, if it's supposed to be cooked at 350, you can't put it at 500 so it cooks faster. You burn it. And you just got to give it time. That's interesting. Well, I know that when you're dealing with what it is that you do, you give advice that helps people. And, you know, relationships aren't just husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend. They're also business relationships. And recently you've been having a, a whole new avenue of advice being offered for from you about in, in the business world and one of the things that we talked about recently that was pretty fascinating to me is this this idea of this imposter syndrome and how that's a limiting piece to people's belief structures on how good or great they can end up being this has also been very fascinating to you because we talked i just remember talking with you about it uh, a couple of days ago about how like impactful it was to you what is it that you're learning about the imposter syndrome and how does it manifest itself both in, you know, familiar relationships versus business relationships as well? Well, you know, it exists a lot in romantic relationships where people tend to see other people as being the ones who can be happy. You know, I always have bad luck in relationships. You know, someone mentioned that to me several times. who has been a client for a long time now. They will say, this always happens to me. I have the worst luck in relationships. Um, they'll say things like, people always do this to me. In this case, she said, men always do this to me. And that was a form of imposter syndrome because she would be happy in a relationship and thinking to herself, wondering to herself, when is this going to fall apart? When is he going to leave? And that's also a form of imposter syndrome where they think I don't deserve, I don't belong in a happy relationship. That's what happens to other people. 
And it's kind of like what we talked about the other day when my son made reference to a kid who had shot a very low number in a tournament. And he was kind of looking back on his two days, and it was one of those things where he's such a good player, he can have what in his mind is, a, is an abysmal day. And I have to kind of remind him, you know, yes, you weren't, you were unsatisfied with how you played, but most people who play the game would kill to have that score that you had on a day where you felt like you, you couldn't find the ball with your club. Yeah. And he doesn't like hearing that. That's fine. But what he will do is he'll kind of say, well, I probably could have been right here. And in this case, he said, I could have been, I think he said, I could have been in second, but I couldn't have shot what so-and-so shot. I'm just not there. or I'm just not that kind of player. And when he said that, I actually got pretty upset because when you assign another person to a place that you can't get to, then when you find yourself approaching it, there's almost like a, a warning. Like, I'm, I, I can't do this. This is not me. This other person is that these other people, they are these special superhero types. They can do this. I'm not that type. Therefore, I can't do that. And you've probably heard about setting goals and how you want to, to, to reach very high or you want to you want to look forward and think this is my goal and it's a very high goal because even if you don't make it you still accomplish a lot even if you fail you you still get to a great place and there's a lot to be said for that in sports in business and a lot of the guys that I speak with one in particular who wants to be a business owner wants to do some things online he has for years looked at people who do that and his attitude has kind of been that they have something special he doesn't and so recently I was able to identify some things for him that he could do very well and that we both knew would work because we had seen an example of it working he had everything he needed mm -hmm. and he could not pull the trigger to even start it and part of that was because so many years of him looking at other people doing what he wanted to do him not doing it, and his conclusion being, there's something different than me. I'm not that type of person. And so even feeling like that he had some roadmap to it, he felt like an imposter. So we have really had to get his mind out of it some and just kind of got him basically to the point where he could take one step at a time. Because again, just like with anxiety, you look too far into the future and try to predict it and then worry about what you think might happen. It's really kind of silly. We all do it. I, I do it. Most people do it to some degree. Some people obviously struggle with it. But for him, it was like, if I do this step, then it's going to lead to this and this and this. And I know I can't get there because I'm not that type of a person. Well, what if you just do this small thing? What if you just, just write this article? Just write two paragraphs of this article. Just sit down and record this video. You don't have to edit it. You don't have to upload it to YouTube yet. Just sit down and do the video. It'll take you 15 minutes. So having him not look too far ahead and just the next step, just the next step can be a little bit of a, a type of uh, therapy, if you will, to that situation, a mm -hmm. type of rehab. But the underlying problem is looking at someone else who has what you have and thinking the reason they have that is because they are something other than you. They've got some other level that you don't. They might at the moment, but you have to allow yourself to think of this as temporary. That's where I want to be. That's where I want to get to. I can do that. And imagine yourself doing that, just like with my son. You know, I told him, 
the number that this kid shot over a two-day tournament was significantly under par. And I said, have you ever made a birdie? And he said, you know, duh, of course. Okay, so you can make a birdie. Mm-hmm. Okay, can you make two birdies? And we just kind of went through that. If you can make one birdie, you can make more. So you could do this, right? Mm-hmm. You could do this. And you saved par. You got up and down. So you can do that a couple more times, right? So this is not outside the realm of possibility for you. At least trying to get him to not see it as a total brick wall in terms of whether he could do it or not, or if this person was just something special and he could never be that special. And so I'm glad that he said it simply because I know that that's how he's thinking. I know that now, so maybe I can guide him a little bit and help him out. But when we start thinking of other people as something special and we're not, that's when imposter syndrome can set in and it can lead to self-doubt. Even if you've gotten there, like I know there are a lot of people on the PGA Tour who have it, and some of the people I've read about got there and they're not there now. And part of that, they blame it on this imposter syndrome. Yeah, that imposter and his name, Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods made everybody feel completely inconsequential for such a long time. He made people feel like they had to play better than they've ever played in their life four straight days in a row to beat him. And they created a vision in their head that he was unbeatable. Who are we playing for a second? Who's going to win the B flight this week? And that's the thing that's so fascinating about like with that, both of those stories. The first person I thought of was Tiger Woods. From 2000 to 2009, literally... He created imposter syndrome with all the tour players. And the ones that have come out the other side, I think Mickelson's one. Mickelson never stops learning and he never stops dreaming. He's a dreamer. You know, he's, he, he actually looks for Tiger Woods to bring out the best in him. Even though he hasn't beat him a majority of the time, not many people have Mickelson's mindset. A lot of people go out and shoot the lowest Thursday, Friday rounds that on a really tough golf course. And they're like, I played so good. This is so great. And I'm just, I'm glad I'm, in, I'm tied for a second going into the weekend. Tiger comes off the golf course. Tiger, great round today, 65. You know, talk to us. You know, well, Peter, uh, I really hit it terrible today. Um, <laughs> I couldn't drive it. Didn't have my A game. Didn't have my A game. I'm not even sure I had my B game. Kind of slapped it around. Made a couple of big putts coming down the stretch. But, I mean, really – it was a really poor effort. I got to go to the driving range and work this out, right? So everybody's listening to Tiger downplaying Lou Holtz talk his golf game. Poor, oh, poor Tiger. And everybody's like, wow, I just played better than I've ever played. And I'm losing by two to Tiger, who just came off the golf course, wanted to kick Peter Costas in the tail for asking him a question about how good he's playing because really he thinks that he sucked. And he's going to the driving range to work it out because I am no good. I have no chance against this guy. And then there are people that were like motivated by Tiger's greatness and were able to witness what Tiger was doing. So this is a great story. This is from Casey Wittenberg. If you remember Casey Wittenberg, I do. He, he was a number one amateur. He played in the amateur the same. He, he lost in the U.S. amateur the same year that Brant won the U.S. Public Links Championship in 2003. So they both played as amateurs at the Masters in 04. So he plays great. Casey actually finishes in the top 15, so he's exempt to play in the next year. And so he's IMG, Tiger's IMG. 
So they have different agents. So one agent calls Tiger's agent and asked if Tiger would be willing to allow Casey to shadow him for a week or just a day. Tiger gives him a day. Says, I want you to come to Isleworth, meet me at the gym, 6.30. So he shows up. I, my guess is is that he's probably been there at 6.15, but he's waiting for Tiger to show up. So he walks inside the gym at 6.30. Tiger's in full lather. On time is late. <laughs> and then they go through the whole routine of what Tiger does from the breakfast to the practice session to the, to the very deliberate practice of what I got to do to get ready for this tournament. So this happened to be the PGA Championship at Southern Hills that Tiger won over Woody Austin and Ernie Els. So he's getting prepared to win a major championship. So Casey goes through this whole thing, and at the very end of Tiger's practice session at that time, I know that he doesn't do it now, but when he was the GOAT of GOATs, he would get up and down 30 consecutive times before he'd leave the practice facility. Hmm. So he starts this up and down situation about 6 p.m. And it takes him over five hours to do it 30 times in a row. Casey Wittenberg is dead. He's laying on his golf bag. He can't even – he's gassed. He's worked out three times already today. He's played 18 holes, and he's hit about 900 golf balls. And now he's trying to play this up and down game. He's got nothing left in the tank. And he comes back and tells his agent, the reason why we can't catch up to Tiger is that we're not as good as he is and we can't work as hard as he does. So he, in essence, brings people in so that they can realize they don't have a chance. He (laughs) helped foster the imposter syndrome because he's like, come on in, see what you got. And it's so overwhelming that it makes them feel like they can't do it. Where if you flip it around, and like, even the most insanely outrageous thought can be conquered by breaking it down into 100 steps if you have to, and do one step at a time until you get there. People forget to look at it that way when they're around that kind of greatness. But the problem is, is that the difference between Tiger Woods and a lot, a lot of people is, Tiger Woods was obviously great. Mm-hmm. Obviously <laughs> great. But there are some people that are put up on a mantle falsely and given the, that Tiger Woods essence without necessarily earning it, and they create a false narrative. Now, if you know Tiger's is somewhat false because he was beatable, he only won 40% of the time in his prime, you know, like anybody else has ever sniffed that, but he still <laughs> lost more times than he won. But people still made it feel like that he never lost. So there's a difference between Tiger because he was that great, but he was still conquerable. And then people who put people up on pedestals incorrectly that falsely diminish their end, their end game because of a fake mantle they put somebody on. What are your feelings on that? Well, I was thinking about what you were talking about that back when I was in college, played college golf, and I played against a teaching professional one day. And he had, uh, it was before I'd started working with you, and he was working with me on the range, kind of working with me on the putting green. And he said, let's go play. 
And it was my first time ever going head to head against a professional. And I was literally walking to the first tee thinking, I'm about to get some humble pie. I'm about to get my butt handed to me. This guy's just because he's a professional. So, again, I was doing it. He's a special thing. He's other than me. He's supernatural. And it took me a few holes, and I started to realize I'm beating this guy. Mm -hmm. And I think that day I shot like 75, and he shot like 82 or 83. And I was surprised. I was surprised that I beat him. And at the time, I didn't realize that that was something to be disappointed about. But now if I were working with someone and they told me that they were surprised, I would say, see, that's a problem. We need to get you to where you're not surprised when you beat someone. We need to get to where that's an expectation. But the other thing is what I was thinking about while you were talking is something I'm working on with my son is to get out of this mindset of this number after 18 holes that, for example, when, when Tiger was asked about how he played and he, oh, I didn't play well. And the other guys were looking at, man, I had my best day. And yet he supposedly just slapped it around and somehow still is ahead of me. I'm really trying to help him get to a mindset of one shot at a time in, in just the extreme of levels in that it doesn't even matter what hole's coming up. It doesn't matter what my number's going to be at the end of the day, at least in terms of what I'm putting my mental focus, my mental effort into. Because one of the most profound stories that has affected me in my life comes from a person who might not surprise you that I look up to. That's Nick Saban. Uh And he was talking about being at Michigan State, and they were playing USC, Southern California. Uh And they were 33-point underdogs, if I remember. And it was kind of a joke. I mean... Nobody was even predicting the winner and loser of that game because they were just expected to walk all over Michigan State because at the time they weren't uh, to, to the level that they are now where they are taken more seriously than they were, for mm-hmm. sure. For sure. And Nick Saban said this actually occurred to him in the middle of the night. He said, we were working hard for this game. And I was just looking at these guys thinking, we don't stack up at all with them. Every position, they've got a blue chip player. We've got a couple of guys who might be able to be competitive. But as, if you just look at them player for player, we don't. On paper, we can't win. And he said, but then it occurred to me, if we were to set up and do one play at a time, could we move the ball? Could we stop them on just one play? And so there was this level of hyper-focusing on the present. And he said, if we just focus on the scoreboard, on paper we'll lose, if we get that far ahead. But if we focus 100% on this play and everything I do, even if it's running two steps and blocking one guy, if we act as though that particular play is the whole game, that that's the only thing we're there for, and we just take it one play at a time, maybe we could win. And he explained it so well to his players. He said, if I see you looking at the scoreboard, you will run laps. If I think you're thinking ahead, you will run laps. If you are doing anything except focusing as though your life depended on it, on this play, if I see you take a playoff, 
your running laps. I mean, he was basically, basically making them stay 100% in the moment mm-hmm. to the point that they trained themselves not to think ahead, and they beat USC. And to this day, Coach Saban says that's the greatest accomplishment of his coaching career was to take a team that on paper could no not chance. compete. And he, what's interesting is when Tiger won his first Masters, I heard him describe after he made the final putt, he didn't know what to do because he was so used to taking it one shot at a time. And he said, the realization occurred to me, I don't have any shots left to play because he was not thinking ahead. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I'm working with for my son and for some people who I'm doing some consulting coaching with is to stop thinking so far ahead and literally just do the next right thing to the absolute best of your ability because when you add all that up if every single second every shot that you make is getting 100 percent, and there's no distraction to what holes coming up or what number you might shoot or what the other guy's playing you're going to be so much better off when you add up those numbers Mm -hmm. and i have to really when i'm playing i have to make myself do that because I will get frustrated if a shot comes off like I don't like it. I already kind of dismiss the hole instead of whatever shot I have. If it's a 40-yard pitch, that's the whole universe. Hitting a good shot there, making even smaller than that, making a good swing, even smaller than that, making a good motion, which the golf swing is just a motion. Mm -hmm. It's movement. So that I'm not thinking so far ahead And one of the things, this is a little bit different than what we're talking about, but I was thinking about it while you were talking about Tiger. My dad laughs at me for this. And I guess some people might say that it's a flaw. It served me well in other areas. But whatever I do, I'm pretty sure I mentioned this to you at one point. For example, with golf, (laughs) I still think when I'm on the range and I'm hitting well, Maybe one day I could play in the PGA Tour. I don't see it as outside of me. I don't see it as beyond me. And at the same time, I can laugh about it because I know I have my limitations. And I know I don't have uh, the ability to to do that at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I'm confident enough in my ability to not rule myself out that I can say that while at the same time time still believing that you don't know something about me Mm -hmm. you know you Virgil don't know it other people don't know it they may think it's silly but I know deep down I could do it one day and so I never give up that dream and it drives me in other areas of life because I don't look at someone and rule myself out of being in their situation or accomplishing something similar and whereas First of all, it's more fun that way, I think. Oh, yeah. I think it's a lot more fun to be able to hit shots and think I'm preparing for a PGA tournament one day. That's way more fun than just, well, that's something I'll never achieve. I don't know how to relate to that, to be honest with you. And like I said, it could very well be a flaw because whenever I get into something, I, I always see myself as being you know, a world-class contributor at it. At it, yeah. And I don't think that's a flaw. Some people even, you know, will laugh at me about that because when they'll say something like I was playing with somebody and he said something about uh, 
can you imagine if we were playing with, I think he said like Tiger and Rory or something, how ridiculous we'd look. And I just kind of looked at him because I don't think that way. And it may be the truth. I'm sure it would be the truth, but I don't think that way. I always think of myself as on their level, that I could do that. And I think it's helped me a lot in situations. It wasn't something I planned. In a lot of ways, it was how my dad spoke into me as I was growing up. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to do that with my son. And I'm trying to help people do that for themselves so that they don't develop imposter syndrome. Interesting. Before I forget, there's a book called The Pep Talk by Dr. Kevin Elko. So Kevin Elko is at the University of Alabama's spiritual leader and part of the sports psychology team. In the story of the pep talk, which I did not know until you told me this story, he tells this story in a fictional high school way, and it's exactly what you're talking about. He wrote this book based on that Michigan State really USC game. He rephrases it, takes out all of the the names to keep people innocent pep talk by dr kevin elko he is an awesome speaker you can look him up on youtube amazing amazing speaker and an, um, if you if you're ready for war when he's done and he does it not so much to provoke provoke anger he just builds up a level of hope and belief and trust in the moment right now that is so cool because i'm sitting like i just heard this story I just read this story to my sons, like my kids are reading pep talk right now as something to do for school because now with, you know, how little they've worked Hmm. with the, you know, satellite learning, so to speak, remote learning, that the schools ask them to kind of keep going so that they don't fall behind when we start back up again. I'm wow. So just just for the listeners out there, pep talk by Dr. Kevin Elko is a great, great book and a great follow on social media and YouTube. And uh, if you're looking for something to kind of build you up, he, he'd be a winner. When speaking of imposter syndrome and its effect on the outcome, so you're, you're talking about your buddy who you are trying to help through the social media platform. And he's a super talented individual that had, had his belief that he was super talented until he got to a certain point. What are some, this is a very, very common problem that probably not many people had a name for until we were giving it right now. Because mm-hmm. it's kind of gotten to be a popular conversation point right now. Um, what, is it, what are some of the, the things that you like to remind people of to help them move past the, the self-enclosed walls that they've pigeonholed themselves into to pull them out? Because I think a lot of listeners are going to be riding around saying, maybe I'm... I might be doing this to a certain degree and it's limiting me in my professional world or whatever. Talk to us about what you're doing. Well, first of all, stop giving everything so much value. Sounds crazy when I say it, but what I mean is, is that if you see something as being just this monumental legendary accomplishment. Don't you feel a little more nervous when you start trying to make it happen? You almost feel more pressure that you might drop the ball. But if you just start viewing everything as a series of steps, a series as being within yourself to make the next right decision, Mm -hmm. and you don't just make things 
so blown up and big, then it's a lot easier to do because, first of all, the pressure's not there. And most of the time, people who accomplish great things have learned to not react to the pressure with anxiety, with panic. Now, they could be nervous, but a lot of times, for example, when Jack Nicholas would feel that, he would remind himself, I'm feeling this because this is where I want to be. Mm. I'm feeling this because I'm doing something that other people don't get to do, that I'm going to get to accomplish something. And a lot of the time when I'm working with people, I, I can see the look in their eye that they're thinking, is this guy serious? You know, trying to accomplish something that they in, in their own minds mm. see as just humongous. There's almost a smirk on their face about it. And I remember hearing a story about when we were trying to go to the moon, which I guess there's some people out there who think we're still trying to go to the moon. <laughs> but let's assume we went to the moon. Yeah, let's assume. Let's assume. There were a lot of people who spoke with President Kennedy and others around that project who basically would say, do you have any idea what we're trying to do? In a lot of ways, they were saying, this is ridiculous. And there were certain people in the project, and I don't know how they got involved, but historically it's wonderful that they were because they had a way of reining these people in and saying, I understand, but let's just focus on this thing. Let's just focus on this next thing. And so instead of trying to take on this whole big project going to the moon, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about this piece to this, this spaceship we're making. We're just talking about what position the moon's going to be in on this day. You know, these, they were things that were within themselves. Mm -hmm. they, they, weren't, they didn't feel like it was reaching. And when you add up all those pieces, you get something big. But one of the things that really got through to this, this particular person who I've known for a while and who had one of the worst cases of imposter syndrome I have ever seen, really felt sorry for him. He had played video games growing up, as a lot of us boys did. And though he is pushing 50, he still plays a lot of video games. He kind of, at the end of the day, it kind of winds him down distracts him. I don't. They don't really keep my attention anymore. But I get it. Mm -hmm. And so we started talking about some classic video games that he had played. And he had beaten these games, you know, got to the very end of the game. One of them was Contra, and the other was Madden, which is a football game. And he had won the Super Bowl in Madden. And I said, so you won the Super Bowl? He goes, well, yeah, in Madden video game. Uh-huh. So how did you do that? And he was kind of, what, what do you mean? Like, well, what made you be able to accomplish this thing? Because there's simulations of these teams, right? Like the players have the same speed as this guy in real life or whatever. How did you beat those simulated teams? Like, how did you beat a simulated version of the Seahawks, you know, whatever? Well, I had a simulated version too. Oh, okay. So you're saying you had all the resources you needed to accomplish this. Because these games aren't just put together randomly or with with no attention to detail yeah they make these players if this guy runs a four five forty in real life they make this video game player do it too and so when you add up 11 players on the field 
you've got a virtual version of that team. And yet here's, here you were able to take a virtual version of another team and beat these guys. And he's, he's kind of reacting to me like, you know, what is your point? Like, this is getting a little silly. And I said, my point is, is that when you had the right resources, you were able to do something pretty amazing, even though we can sit here and say it was just a video game. You had the resources you needed to do something, and you did it. And so I said to him, I'm telling you that to do what you're wanting to do, we know, we both know you have all the resources to do it. And so it's really just a game. And there's a book called Game Theory. I can't think of the person who wrote it, but he talks about something. He doesn't talk about the video games, but he talks about if you view things in life as though everything that you're wanting to accomplish that are big things, it's just a game that you're playing. Because when we play a game, like if you're playing a video game, there's no white-fingered or sorry, white knuckled nervousness. You know, there's not that pressure because it's, you just view it as a game and you can relax. And, and it's almost a form of curiosity you have. What if I just do this? You know, what, what, if, what if I try to take this, make this big throw in this game to win the Super Bowl? You take the pressure off yourself. And this childlike curiosity, even because kids don't seem to put this, this kind of pressure on themselves. And it's really helped him to try to view things hmm. as a game and that he's just a character in this game who is blessed with all the resources he needs to do this. And so he's just going to do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And when my son really seemed to get one day, the idea of taking things one motion at a time, I remember watching him and how he, things seemed to slow down. He shot two under in a tournament uh, with uh, close to 60 boys and he finished second overall. He was two under 18. And afterwards we were just talking and he said, dad, something you said really struck me, which is wonderful to hear as a dad. Sure. Because usually they just think you're silly. But he said, I wanted every shot. I wanted to hit the best possible shot that I could. And I pretended that that shot was the only shot I was going to hit all day. Wow. And I didn't even say that part to him. Yeah. That's I wish really I could cool. take credit for that. But he said, you know, I would have a, a 30 yard pitch on a par five and rather than thinking oh cool i can hit a semi just kind of an okay shot and still make par he said i was thinking this is the only shot i get to play all day the whole game is in this one shot this is the game this shot there's not 18 holes this is it and he said and i put more value in the shot and so then i was able to look back and i remember on the 18th hole that he birdied this other kid that he was playing against they were uh they were tied most of the day, but my son had taken a two-shot lead going into that hole. And this kid, I felt bad for him because he looked so panicked and like he was just desperate. He went for the par five and two, making this gargantuan swing with a three-wood. And this was a good player. He tops the ball just because he was trying to swing out of his shoes and make something happen. He was trying to force something. And my son was just relaxed. He seemed to take his time. Things seemed slower for him. And he made birdie on that hole. And I remember watching him on that pitch shot. He studied everything. He went back. He seemed relaxed, but he also seemed very focused. And he did have that look that the game they were playing was one shot. Like you're having an up and down contest with somebody and you're going to play just this one game. And so he made the game much smaller, a series of small games instead of looking at it. as a big game. It's a big game. And he shot 
two under and you know finished second and it was actually the lowest round that anybody his high school's ever shot in 18 wow. holes but he didn't look at it as 18 holes he looked at it as every single shot was the only game he was playing that day that's interesting and so we try to get him back to that but what i would say to people in business even in relationships when we try to think too far ahead and again to get biblical you know jesus basically said look today's got enough man stop thinking so much about tomorrow and what are we going to do when this happens and all that have more confidence in yourself that you'll figure it out that doesn't mean you don't plan ahead yeah you do the best you can with that but today is enough for anything you're doing this moment this second is enough and it's so much more relaxing there's so much little pressure when you pull everything in and you're just right here and you're just going to do the next thing and in the words of my son and that becomes the whole game is this one small thing rather than trying to take on 18 holes at a time or building a million dollar business pull it all in and just do the next thing that you need to do yeah very easy to say but not easy to apply not always easy to apply it it's interesting you know in the you know, when you're, when you're a person who generally falls back into the past, you struggle with depression. When you're a person who generally falls forward, you struggle with anxiety. So when I coach golf and I use focus band right. to help people identify what part of the brain they're activating as they're preparing to hit and hitting and then post-shot post routine, so to speak, what happens after you hit it. The people who can't move past the mistake they just made can't play in the present. The people that are nervous about the end outcome can't play. Because both of these things engage the prefrontal cortex because they're trying to protect you. The prefrontal cortex is solely designed to keep you safe. So the past, the, when the past is trying to influence the present, it creates a level of depression. Like, God, I guess I hope I don't do this again. The last time I had this opportunity, I totally screwed it up. You know, all of the negative things that creep into your head, that activates the wrong part of the brain when it comes to performing an endeavor. Same holds true if you go into the forefront. You start getting ahead of yourself. <clears throat> You're on hole 14, and you know that somebody shot four under, and you're at one under. I got to birdie three more holes in the last five. I got, I got, I got, I got, I got, I got. As soon as it's I have to, or I got to, or I need to, you lose the sight that you get to. You get to make three birdies on the last next five holes to force a playoff, maybe four to win, but you can't do it if you're not in the present. So, in my opinion, the 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 Godfather of present is Eckhart Tolle. And his, his book, The Power of Now, is amazing. He yes. did an amazing, amazing 10-part uh, documentary with Oprah on The Power of Now. So unbelievable. So powerful. I have that on my phone, by the way. That's my it. Kindle. Is my that phone. right? Yeah. It's so good. And it's like I, you're, on, you're nailing something so key for people to understand is that if you find yourself in the past wishing you hadn't done something because something in the past has impacted your present day moment, 
that makes you feel depressed. You can't rewind the tape. And if you find yourself in the future worrying about bills, your job, whatever, or I got a birdie three of the last five to have a chance to win, that creates anxiety. That also prevents you from experiencing the now. Mm -hmm. So to be able to, you can't press rewind, and you also can't press fast forward because all we have right now is now. All you can do is press play. Just press play. Be here now. And so it's bizarre because it's so actually simple. But it is so scary because we believe that a positive or a negative outcome in the past will have an immediate impact on the present. And we also think that if I win this, this is going to change my life. I got to do it. I have to do this. Both of those things prevent people from actually winning. And it's the ability to, first of all, recognize that you struggle with one of those two sides. Everybody does. I don't even think that the greatest of the great struggle with one side or the other. I think that I think in the, in the future more. I get, I get a little bit excited, anxious about if I can do this, this is going to make this domino fall next. And I get ahead of myself, and it always distracts me. It got me on the golf course a gajillion times. I get so fired up of, if I can do this, then this, then this, I'm going to win. And literally, I tell this to people all the time, I've won 14 times as a professional, and 11 of those times, I felt like I had no game, I had no expectations, and I just played one shot at a time, much like Jake's doing right now. He's just like, I just hope I hit this ball on the planet. <laughs> I hope I don't hook this one out of bounds. I just want to, I'm going to, I don't want to, like I'll, I'll verbalize it. God, I don't want to hit this out of bounds, so I'm not going to hit driver here. I hit it long enough that if I hit a good three iron, I can hit a good eight iron. I don't need to hit driver lob wedge to make an easy par. I, it's, it's hilarious. Some of my greatest events playing were literally the worst warm-up sessions ever. Tiger's done it. Justin Thomas had the most recent one that he verbalized it when he won his last tournament. He said it was literally the worst warm-up he's ever had. Stepped on the tee and said, I'm going to shoot 80 today. And he shoots 65 and wins running away. And he, he's like, what happens? You, that your initial performance rattled you so badly that you turned off all expectations. And if you've listened to this podcast enough to know, I call expectations cancer, performance cancer. Yeah. And it's, it gets you every single time. You know, one of the times when my son looked at me like I was crazy was when he was really struggling on the range one day, just not feeling it. And he said, what do I do if I slice it off number one? And I just said, well, you'll find the ball and figure it out. You'll hit your next shot. And he looked at me like, what? And I remember a day when he was playing just like you described. He was just scrambling. I mean, he's won pretty. He's played pretty and shot good scores. But then he shot good scores where it was ugly. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, like you said, a lot of times, that really helps because you're not 
allowing yourself to think too much into the future. You're literally just having to figure it out when you get there. Yeah. And that's what he told me at the end of the day. I said, so what were you thinking during this game? What, where was your head? Just kind of tell me about it. And he said, I wasn't taking anything for granted because I knew I didn't have my A game, didn't have my, my swing. And so I just figured, well, I'm going to make the best swing I can, and I'll figure out the next shot when I get there. And what he was basically saying was he was staying in the moment mm -hmm. because he didn't take any part of the future for granted either way. He didn't assume anything bad, and he didn't assume anything good. He just was going to stay right here because that was enough to handle. And there was um, one other point that you made that I, I wanted to say something to, and I'm trying to remember it. I hate when that happens. Oh, I know what it is. One of the things that I will say a lot to people who call in and they have been dumped by somebody and they're, they're almost hyperventilating, they're panicking. The anxiety is overwhelming. And I can say this easier because in a lot of ways I'm sitting as an authority figure, mm -hmm. a coach, someone who's gonna, who has permission to tell them what to do. And so I'll say to them, I want you to know that I'm expecting only one thing of you. That's it. There's only one thing I'm telling you you have to do. And they're like, what is that? Breathe. That's all you have to do right now. You don't have any other responsibilities. You don't have any other chores ahead of you. You don't have any other decisions to make. All you have to do right now is breathe. That's it. It's the only thing you have to do. And so I've also said that to my son mm -hmm. when he was dealing with some anxiety over golf. I said, you know all you have to do right now? What? So all you have to do is breathe. And if you can focus on something that simple that's in the moment with you, mm -hmm. it's amazing how things tend to slow down and how you can take on just the next second and you don't have to take on so much of the future. And I remember Michael Jordan saying in a, a quote how many times he had been expected to take the game-winning shot and missed it and lost the game for him. And like you mentioned with Tiger, we only remember when he won. But Michael Jordan, like Tiger Woods, like Larry Bird, like Ben Hogan probably, failure was something that they weren't scared of. Yeah. They figured it would happen some. But they also had the attitude of, I'll even figure that one out when I get there. Yeah. Because there's, there's very few permanent failures. Most things are temporary obstacles. Yeah. I had a really interesting story told to me by Stephen Yellen, who's really one of my all-time favorite performance coaches. And he's very big in the neuro, neuroscience and how the brain optimally performs. And we were discussing the high school golf team as we were preparing to win the state championship. And he tells the story of the German soccer team when they beat Argentina in the World Cup when Messi was super messy. And uh, Argentina was, they were favored to win. They're in, they're in South America. They're, they're going to have all the fans behind them. And the German coach walks in and he says, do you want to win? And everyone's like, Yes. If you want to win, you have to be willing to accept that you may lose today. Are you willing to accept the possibility that you may lose? Because if you are willing to accept the possibility that you may lose, you are also willing to accept the possibility that you may win. 
But if the only thing you can think of is winning, you will feel so much pressure. And I'm here to tell you that Messi and those boys over there at Argentina, the only thing that is crossing their mind is we have to win. This is a Latin sport. We should. We should win. We have the greatest player ever, maybe, in Lionel Messi. We have all these great players. We're historically great. Diego Maradona and so many other superstars. We can't lose. And he later says that the players talked about on the field of play that they knew that there was a chance they could lose. So they played free. Mm -hmm. Argentina played so tight because they couldn't lose. Mm. So that's one of the things I presented to the team with a gigantic lead going into the second day. I said, are you willing to accept the possibility that you could play great tomorrow and we still lose? And they looked at me. They weren't quite sure what I was getting to. But I'm like, there is a very real possibility that we could go out tomorrow and play the best golf we can play and we still lose. Are you okay with that? And it took them a while, and they all said yes. I said, then good, because then that means there's also a chance that we might win. And a couple of the kids told me that that was what really set them free, especially with the quality of play that Montgomery Bell Academy played, which they came from 14 down with nine holes to play and tied it with two holes remaining. Wow that they still played free because we told them that this was all possible and they could still withstand it. They might not, but they still could. And it was a beautiful moment. And they'll never forget that moment. And hopefully it pays off for them later in life because they were able to noticeably be the favorite going in, take all the pressure of knowing that we're supposed to win, play their game in the present, and withstand a legendary charge from probably one of the five best players in the country. He's going to the University of Virginia. Shoots 62 in the final round. A high school golfer shoots 62 in the final round of the biggest tournament of his high school life. And we were able to withstand it. That's a big deal. That and they're going, to be deal. Able, they're going to be able to look back on that and draw from that, knowing that they could have lost. And it would have been okay because they did their best. And the value of understanding your limitations and what you can control, as long as you keep the process in mind, that's all we actually have control over. That's a powerful, powerful place to be. I told this story again to my boys recently after a tournament. They had separate tournaments that day. And one of them won. And my older son had the round we talked about where it's pretty decent number it was either 74 or 75 and he just felt like he played awful uh, really difficult pin placement and I quoted Ben Hogan and he it's when he said you know who I feel sorry for is these country club boys who have never had anything bad happen to them and they missed the green and it's like the worst thing that's ever happened to him it's just a total tragedy and he said when I missed the green, and I stopped, and I said, did you hear that, boys? Ben Hogan said, when I missed the green. When I missed the green. I think, I'm getting to play golf. Because I know what real tragedy is, and missing the green is not real not tragedy. Real, not real tragedy. But I, 
I pointed that out to them that Ben Hogan said, when I missed the green. In other words, he knew that was within the realm of possibility. Yeah. And the part that made him a champion was he figured, when I miss the green, I'll figure it out. Yeah, so true. Well, the second half of the show, because we've already had a second half of the show when we talked about the things that matter to you and the things that you do to fill your cup up, this is going to allow us to spin around here and talk about how it's affecting right now which is you and I both are huge college football fans. You and I are both huge PGA Tour fans and sport fans. That life as we know it has been cartwheeled, flipped upside down, and you know the coronavirus is on the top rope, jumping off with a flying elbow, <laughs> about ready for the pin. We are not going to, we have, we're not gonna see a concert this year any longer. We don't know what type of we're going, to see, we're going to see NBA head to the playoffs with no fans. We're going to see the NHL go to the playoffs with no fans. We're going to see the first four PGA Tour events with no fans. How difficult would you feel it would be for you personally, and then roll it out into a bigger version, when what would be considered the fabric, one of the fabrics of our nation, which is football and college football in particular for a lot of people, will either not happen or you will not be able to be in the environment that fills you up, something that you love so much, so passionate about, that is gone. How do you sense that that will impact you if it doesn't happen? And what kind of effect do you sense it could happen, could have on the American people? It's a big question. And to be honest with you, I haven't thought that far ahead. Yeah, <laughs> because I uh, I have really trained myself not to, but I have been asked by a few people. You know, will we have it? Why, what will that be like if we don't? And what will we do? And because every fall, as long as I can remember, that nip would get in the air, the leaves would turn, you can hear the wind blowing through them, and thinking about Saturday when Alabama plays or when there's some rivalry game. I really like watching any kind of rivalry game. Yeah. It's just lots of fun. And thinking about that not being the case on Saturday does make me sad. You know, that's my first response is I just feel I feel sad about it that we're we're going through this. I also because I'm very deliberate in terms of how I think to the point that now I I don't have to I don't have to redirect my thoughts much. I just naturally tend to go there. I'm such an optimist too about things like that. I kind of have the approach of we'll figure it out when we get there. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that some version of it can happen. I do believe that if you can see progress with something and we have seen progress, a lot of reopenings have been happening and I know we've gotten to finally go out and have meals, at least here in Tennessee, we can go to a restaurant and sit down and have something to eat. So I usually try to take a lot of encouragement from direction and progress. Yeah. And I would encourage anyone who is going to find themselves in that situation. And I know a lot of people who they, so much of their, their experience in life has been, wrapped around that uh, one person I'm thinking of in particular who every fall their children 
that go as a family to every UT game, no matter where it is. And they talk about it all year together. I mean, they just have a lot of fun with it. It's, it's a big part of their experience together. I could see that being very different for them, obviously. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that taking things one day at a time, not getting too far ahead, also helps with is sadness for an uncertain future because, like we talked about earlier, we usually tend to underestimate our ability to handle those types of things. So true. And so if your assumption becomes, I'll figure that out when I get there, you know, I'm confident enough in myself, even emotionally speaking, that I'll figure that out when I get there. And if I have a bad day, I just collapse emotionally. That's okay too. I'll figure that out and I'll rise again. Yeah. That's how I tend to view most things. And even if you have to fake it to a degree, even just say it out loud, I'll figure that out when I get there. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I think I say that every day because that's really how I view things. And I think that's the healthiest way to look at it yeah. simply because like we talked about, how many times have you anticipated something going badly that didn't or that didn't go nearly as badly as you thought it would? Mm -hmm. We are just so ignorant of the future. There's so many moving parts that it's really pointless to agonize over it. So maybe we'll have college football. Maybe we'll have college basketball. Maybe schools will start on time. Maybe they won't. I hope that enough people can have confidence that as a society we'll figure it out when we get there and that there are going to be days again when we can have that because humanity has had pandemics. We've had concerns about health and safety and we've been able to rise out of them. Everything is a season. Even failures are usually not permanent. They're temporary and you get another chance at it. And so I hope that people are able to look at it that way, even if they have to redirect themselves mm -hmm. and fake it till yeah. they make it. Yeah, so true. I think that one of the things that I've, I've had happen in some of my recent conversations is that I, I end up talking with people that aren't athletic and that, that sports doesn't mean anything to them. And they're in the place of, well, this is good because this puts, this allows people to redirect and put meaning into things that really matter. College football doesn't really matter, Virgil. NFL football doesn't really matter. Whether Tiger beats Rory or Rory beats Tiger doesn't matter. And my reply to that was, you're right on the, like this blimp view. From the blimp, you're right. It does not matter. But what you're discounting is that you love theater. You love to go see plays at the theater. That is what you like. That's taken away from you too. How does that feel? I don't like that. That's, that's one of the things that hurt me. I said, well, the reason why it hurts you is that that is where you go to connect your soul and your spirit and your mind all together into something that fills you up. So we athletes or we that grew up watching it because it brought people together like-mindedly to enjoy time together 
with something bigger than just themselves. So when you go see Phantom of the Opera, you almost kind of like transport yourself into the play, just like I sit there and wish that I was wearing my Penn State uniform and I was the one that was getting handed off the ball to, or I was the one that's going to be throwing the football to the wide receiver, or I was going to be the person to take down Tiger Woods. I put myself there, and that is my connection to something that means something to me. So all that we're really talking about here is the things that bring people together because human connection is a major source of recharge. As soon as we remember that we're not actually glorifying the sport or glorifying the actor, we're glorifying the ability to connect and communicate with others that think like we do so that we can find out that we belong. And that's where I take stances on people that like things that I don't like is that I don't have to like going to see a play. I don't have to like swimming because I have an inner ear issue that my head can't depressurize underwater. But I can certainly appreciate how much it matters to you and how much it would suck to have it taken away from you. Just because I don't like it and I wouldn't miss it doesn't mean that I don't empathize with your situation and how much it would bother you. Try to give me the same respect because some people are quick to demean you because you put a level of joy and something you hang on to. That's a game. Well, we could argue that almost everything's a game. That's right. You know, and it's those who take the right attitude toward competing at life that you learn to glean from it and pick it and choose it and make it fill you up and make you better. I think that I think it's going to be interesting this year in college football because I believe there are going to be states that are so much harder hit than others that there are going to be different rules that have to go into play just because of the situation. So this is like what I'm hearing. And I've had the opportunity to teach a Heisman Trophy winner um, from Ohio State. And he talks about how one of the things, because there's no governing body for college football, is that there's a chance that USC might not be able to play any football this year because of how bad the coronavirus is in L.A. Or UCLA, for that matter. But Arizona and Arizona State, it hasn't been hit at all. So some of these Pac-10 schools are going to be able to play, and others won't. So does that count as a forfeit loss? Does it not even count toward the season? If, if Alabama goes 10-1 and one and they only lose to LSU, and Oregon is 6-0, and oh, and beat everybody they could play, but they couldn't play UCLA, they couldn't play Stanford, and they couldn't play uh, USC, and they couldn't play who, who cares who else. And they only got six games in. Does Oregon not belong? And Alabama does because they were 10-1 and one and they played everybody except one team. The governance of it is going to be unique. Hmm. But at the end of the day, I think we'll see... I think we're going to see passions play out, too. 
I think the SEC is more like hell bent to we're playing. I don't care what happens. We're playing. Mm-hmm. And and then some areas that are less hell bent will be like this is not that big. Mm-hmm. For, but this is part of culture in the South, right? I mean, this is whether you like it or not. Turnip greens, hot chicken, barbecue, college football. Yep. Uh, that's the South, and that's what we do here, so to speak. Now, I, I'm, I've, I've now I consider myself a Nashvilleian because I've lived here longer than I've lived anywhere. But I'm from Pennsylvania. Football is a big deal there too, but it's not that big of a deal in New York. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, there's like a itty bitty window of time that Syracuse was a power. And Rutgers was never really anything. Hmm. Now, where do you go for you're looking for your New York schools? Nowhere. There's nothing in New York when it pertains to college football. And they got the Giants and the Jets. But NFL seems different than college when it comes to the passion of the fans. Right. It's very different. Very different. It's going to be fascinating to see because I think that the Big Ten and the SEC are in their own planet of fandom. Mm-hmm. And then you got the University of Texas is kind of like their own outlier, and you got Notre Dame, and they're their own outlier because they're independent. And you got Oklahoma and Miami. You got a handful of ones that aren't necessarily attached to those two right. that are going to they're going to play. I mean, they'll have they'll, Notre Dame will have the boat, the Pope come out and bless everybody to make sure that we're they're going to play football. That's right. It's be my gut. That's what I'm feeling. We're going to do whatever we can to keep the tradition alive. Mm-hmm. But whether it is or not, we won't we won't know because obviously there's something bigger in life like living. If it gets to that point and they can validate and prove that this is now everything that they said it would be and more, then we have the right to shut it down because it's creating a massive problem. But I still think they're going to try to figure out a way. Like you said, you have to trust that they're going to figure out a way based around the current scenario to make it happen. And some people might think it's funny that we're talking about how do we emotionally deal with that with with a football season being canceled. And like you said, but those types of people might enjoy something such as big band music or theater or chess, whatever it is, and that's really important to them. Um, the thing I think is important to apply that we've already talked about is just say to yourself, you know, we may not have college football this season. That could happen. Put it out there. Mm-hmm. Let it be something where if it does happen, it's not tragic. It's not just the worst thing that ever happened to you. Yeah. It's a negative, but it's something that you acknowledge is in the realm of possibility. Yeah, very true. And that you will move forward, that you'll have a good time, that you'll enjoy life, even if it doesn't, that you mm-hmm. are so stubborn in a good way yeah. that you'll find a way anyway to enjoy it. And that's, that's, that's how I'm gonna, going to approach it. But I really hope that September rolls around and I'm getting to watch some college football game. Yeah. Have those Saturdays where play a little golf, watch a little college football, have a gla- little glass of wine in the evening, and look back at my day and think what a great day it's been. Mm-hmm. Final question to talk about things that we know really get us fired up. With the PGA Tour shut down, we had two, <clears throat> two exhibition events. One with Rory headlining it with Dustin Johnson, Matt Wolf, and Ricky Fowler. At a golf course we've never seen on TV before, but widely considered one of the 10 greatest in the world, Seminole. 
And then what everybody loves, which is the match between Tiger and Phil, and that's time they bring in two the, the two greatest quarterbacks that we can think of right now, Peyton Manning and Tom Brady. How did you feel like that played out as a, as a fan and a lover of golf and watching the greatest play? How do you feel like that panned out as a spectator for you? And what are your takeaways of the events and how they might play out in the future? What I really loved about it was that it felt like a reality show more than typical golf would. Got to hear more conversation. I saw Tiger show some shots uh, uh, to Tom Brady. He was, he was, he was, he was with Peyton. Man. He was Peyton. Okay, he was showing Peyton. That's right. That's right. Tiger was showing Peyton. I think it was a little pitch shot. He's like, yeah, just do like this. And he was kind of moving his club, giving, giving Peyton some instructions. So got the team golf element. Got to hear him talk and got to watch the great Peyton Manning get some advice from the great Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. And like I mentioned the other day to you, it, it had a, also a little bit of a feel like boxing, you know, like it, it, this head-to-head -head matchup of these two, these two heavyweight champions and that you have greatness, golf, greatness, football, taking on greatness, which is really cool. It's a, it's a, I can see the commercials, you know, it's like a high ticket item. Like, Oh yeah. Um, it's almost like a, a Mike Tyson versus Muhammad Ali type of feel to it, you know, taking two greats that never fought yeah. because of the time periods they were in. And it also gave me a lot of imagination uh, possibilities as far as what other people could we see in these situations playing with a professional golfer against another professional golfer and a, a person in their field. It opens it up to a lot of things that could be interesting. Like one of the things I mentioned to you was taking someone who was a no-name, kind of like Rocky Balboa. Yeah. The idea of him fighting Apollo, and Apollo was giving this this shot to this no-name to fight for a title or to, to at least fight in an exhibition. Seeing Tiger Woods play against a golfer who's trying to make it, you know, just some guy who's – working at a country club or taking a college player, yeah, you know, and these head to head matchups, that would be really a dramatic thing. I think that even people who are not necessarily into golf that they would like to see and having football fans wanting to watch Tom Brady or Peyton play brought them into the arena of golf to where mm -hmm. they're like, you know what? I haven't played in a while or I've never really seen much fun in that game, but it looks like they're having a lot of fun out there. Sure. Which is good for golf. I hadn't even thought about it in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was even thinking, you know, what if you bring in like Wayne Gretzky, you know? Well, yeah, there's the thing. The first two people that come to my mind would be Tiger and Gretzky and Phil and Mario Lemieux, both very wow. good golfers. <clears throat> Tiger, Michael Jordan, Steph Curry, Phil Mickelson. That sounds like a winner. I mean, that sounds like a great winner. Mm -hmm. And then you get like the possibility of. Vince Gill and Joe Don Rooney, two very good golfers that are musicians that are super duper famous. That would be compelling. You get all these walks of life and you bring them together on the golf course and you put them with, in our lifetime, probably the two greatest players. You could argue maybe Greg Norman's more valuable than Phil Mickelson, but not by the numbers. Mickelson's got more majors and more victories, but we thought of Greg Norman maybe being the number one player in the world for a long time. period yeah. of time. Yeah. And Phil Mickelson has never been number one. Thanks to tiger. But I mean, you got 45 wins and five majors. You yeah. If you can take away one person 
and we we would say that Phil Mickelson was the most dominant player in history. Yeah. If you, the number of times he finished second to Tiger, it's ridiculous. If yeah. I, if, and Ernie I'm, Els has finished second to Tiger more than Phil, actually. Really? I didn't yeah, know Yeah, it's pretty amazing, How, especially in major championships. But I, I really thought that was interesting. I almost feel like Tiger and Rory, probably Phil too, but Tiger and Rory probably looked at that event as it ended up, and they're like, wow, we raised a lot of money to help people. Which ultimately means we raised a lot of money. Hmm. hmm. And because these tour players are private contractors, they don't play for a team. They represent the PGA Tour, but they're private contractors. I got a feeling that Tiger, Phil, and Rory are kind of like, hmm, this is a new income stream. Yeah. And, and the- with, the, with the possibilities of YouTube, Discovery Channel, the golf TV thing, they're kind of like, hmm, I think this could be a new way. And that would be, that would be amazing. The other angle where possibilities open and the fascination element is put even more into it would be instead of playing courses that we already know about, pick some public course somewhere. Oh, yeah. You know, some... That wow, they're going to play at our local. Course. Have, you, have you ever wondered when you're playing a course? I wonder what the Tiger big boys would do. Yeah, what would? Now we can know. And and the thing is, I know that a lot of the courses they play, they want to make it more difficult. The PGA Tour does not want those ultra low scores. They're trying to protect the dignity of the course, maybe. But I think it would be awesome to see them play some of these public courses where that has not happened. Just play. I want to see how low they can go. I want to see like a 55 or something. Just yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, that be cool? Yeah, there's an element of that that just. It's so much fun to think about. And so they're playing with somebody who's a big name that is fascinating in their own right and brings in another element of viewership, but also they're playing a local course somewhere. And I think that would be fascinating to people who live there locally and played that. You know, wow, I play play that a lot. Wow, he shot 55, something like that. That would be a really neat element to add, too, is if if they didn't play the courses that are the are on the typical list yeah. where the PGA goes. Maybe that could happen. I kind of doubt it, but it would be neat if it did. Yeah, no doubt. Well, thank you for taking the time to come on The Verge again and discuss the current situation of life as most people are experiencing it and helping us navigate the present while most people are spending a lot of time in the future. How can my listeners learn more about you read that amazing article that was written for you with you at the USA Today and all the other times that you've been on national television, where can they find all this material and learn more about you, Lee? Most of it's going to be at myxbackcoach.com or you can go to leewilson.org if that's easier for you. You can search YouTube for Coach Lee. And uh, as far as the USA Today article, you would probably have to go to Google and type in Lee Wilson USA Today or Coach Lee USA Today and uh, and find it. It I don't think it's still on the front of usatoday.com at the moment, but uh, it was about relationships emerging from the pandemic and, yeah. and what we're going to see and the survey that I did of my mailing list. And so very uh, trending topic. Awesome. But, yeah, I appreciate it very much, Virgil. Great. Just talking with you. Very, very fun. Well, I can't thank you enough, buddy. I look forward to uh, sharing many more moments with you. 
Have a great one. All right, buddy. Take care. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website, www.curemich.com. Cure. Cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers. If you've enjoyed the show, leave a five-star rating and write a review. Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode.